Hey everyone, Emery and Kelsey here. Welcome to our podcast, Hidden Figures, of women, for women, by women. As two women majoring in international relations, we have realized that many international affairs are often framed, written, and discussed through the perspectives of men. This podcast is devoted to the significant and oftentimes overlooked role that women play in shaping, changing, and participating in these contemporary global issues. From political representation to economic development, Hidden Figures seeks to explore the unique challenges women face and the different perspectives we bring to the table. We would like to thank the Keck Center for International and Strategic Studies at Claremont McKenna College for supporting this podcast, and digital artist Sabrina Stone for drawing our cover art. This podcast will be divided into two parts. First, we will interview our guest, former CEO of the DNC, Seema Nanda. Then, we will summarize our thoughts by reflecting on the interview. This episode, focusing on the role of women in politics, is inspired by the current election cycle with Senator Kamala Harris as the vice president to Joe Biden on the Democratic National Committee, DNC's, ticket. In the 2016 election cycle, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was unsuccessful, but this year's election might be different. That being said, we also want to celebrate the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage by examining the distance women have traveled in politics while still addressing some of the persistent issues. For today's podcast, we will be interviewing Seema Nanda, who is the former CEO of the Democratic National Committee. Previously, Ms. Nanda has served as the Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer at the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. She has also worked as the Deputy Deputy Solicitor and Deputy Chief of the Staff and Senior Counselor to the DNC Chair Tom Perez in the Labor Department. Before working at the Labor Department, Ms. Nanda has led the Office of Immigration and Employee Rights Section in the U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. Ms. Nanda has also had experience with practicing labor and employment law and served on the boards of several nonprofit organizations. Hi, Ms. Nanda. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to jump right into the interview with our first question. For our audience, can you tell us about your background and how you ended up as CEO for the DNC and what was your primary role while you were there? Sure. Um, I, um, I am trained as a lawyer, so I was a little bit of an unlikely uh, person to end up in this role. I had spent most of my career um, as a lawyer, um, and I was in the federal government for a while, and a couple of the positions um, I had, I was at the Civil Rights Division um, heading up a section that enforces protections for employment protections for immigrants. And then I moved to the Department of Labor as uh, in various roles and I ended up being chief of staff to the secretary of the last half of the administration, Secretary Tom Perez, who later came came to be the chair of the DNC. Um, And after I left the administration, I went to the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, which is a um, it's basically the coalition of all civil rights organizations. I shouldn't say all, but 200 civil rights organizations. 
Um, and uh, after um, about uh, a year there, uh, the CEO who was there originally left, and that's when I came to be the CEO at the DNC. And you asked me a big question. Okay, you also asked me what was what was my responsibility there? Yeah. So, um, so this the DNC is a is a large, you know, complicated organization with a with a very basic and straightforward mission. It's to um, do everything it can to help get Democrats elected at all stages of government from school boards all the way to the Oval Office. Um, and it, it is an organization under my tenure, we had about 200 employees. Um, and then you also have uh, DNC members who um, are generally elected by people across the country um, or appointed, there's some that are appointed by the chair um, you certainly have, you know, congressional members, you have Democrats across the country, you have a lot of constituency organizations that you're all kind of working in concert to elect Democrats. So my job at the DNC as the CEO was really to run the day-to-day -day of the organization, um, help uh, set strategy and really lay a lot of the infrastructure that is in place now um, for our nominee, Joe Biden, to make sure that he wins in November. Speaking of Joe Biden, um, so there are like a lot of diverse candidates campaigning to become the nominee. Um, so right from Bernie Sanders to as we now have Joe Biden. Um, and today many critics of the DNC say that the DNC has cast a tent that is too big. Uh, to what extent do you agree or disagree with the statement? And as CEO of the DNC, how are you able to balance the diversity of, of the party? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think it's 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 really important to have uh, a democratic party that is open to folks who share our values as Democrats. Um, that people ha should have a fair shake in this economy. That we support a strong public education. That we think of immigration as our strength, and not our weakness. So, I think it's really important um, that our party is open. Uh, to a lot of uh, people. And I think it's really important to have also diversity of perspective within our party. So um, we did have a lot of very diverse candidates in the primary. At, at one point we had, uh, I think 25 <laughs> candidates who were running for president. Um, so in a lot of ways, um, there, was a, there was a lot to navigate, but what we tried to do is make sure that every candidate had a fair shot, that we treated everyone fairly, that everyone really got to make their case to the American people um, and, you know, let the process play out and have our nominee emerge. Yeah, and it seems that like one common thing at least is that every candidate is anti-Trump. Um, and uh, well, since we are IR majors and our podcast is mostly for an international relations majoring audience, um, we do want to talk a little bit about Trump and IR, right? So it's become pretty clear that President Trump is incredibly unpopular in the international community. In fact, some op-eds write that the world is laughing at Donald Trump or that Trump has helped the U.S. see its dark side. 
So if a Democrat were to be elected president, do you think that the infamy that President Trump has wreaked on the international stage will continue to be detrimental to our foreign interests? Or do you think that the U.S. will be able to regain its reputability with our foreign allies? I, um, well, first, I was an IR major as well, so it's nice to be in your IR podcast. Um, I think that the damage this uh, president has done to our credibility around our world, around the world, to our allies, um, to our lack of moral authority, to um, to his uh, idealization of uh, really horrible uh, dictators and sort of the loss of the moral compass is as reprehensible as anything um, this president has done. But I do think um, we can get that back in the world, especially by getting the White House back in November where um, a lot of his most uh, destructive work it can still be undone. Um, so I do think it's possible. I think one thing about having uh, Vice President Biden as our nominee is he is so uh, well known to foreign leaders. He is such a, a strong uh, foreign policy um, uh, statesperson that I do think it's um, it's not only possible, I think it's really vital, you know, for the for the long term uh, economic and world security of our country and frankly, the rest of the world. I mean, frankly, if we're going to solve big problems like uh, the climate crisis and um, and other things, you know, it's it's absolutely vital that we start by um, working in concert with our allies again. I completely agree that Biden has amassed great reputability on the international stage, especially in comparison um, to Trump. And you know, aside from the kind of international infamy that Trump has brought, I would say an equally big uh, negative effect of his president is kind of his poor handling of the coronavirus, you know, an unprecedented situation in which the U.S. really, it was crucial for strong leadership. Um, and so objectively, the U.S. has not handled COVID-19 as well as we should have. Um, and as of August 16th, there have been 5.4 million confirmed cases and 169,000 deaths from the virus. I mean, there's still, of course, like 50,000 new cases every day. Um, and it is abundantly clear that several other countries like South Korea, New Zealand, and Singapore um, have fared much better against the pandemic. So what do you think the U.S. federal government or the Trump administration could have done better to prevent the quick spread of the disease? Um, and what do you think the U.S. government could do better in the future to kind of prevent future pandemics? Yeah, I mean, I think what uh, this president has done uh, is has been catastrophic for uh, Americans' health. And at the same time as he has totally fumbled uh, the coronavirus uh, crisis, he has also um, stoked uh, hate and used it as a further opportunity to divide us with um, really offensive uh, racial slurs is even how he refers to COVID-19. Um, I think there are a number of things this administration um, could have done early on. Um, you know, let's not forget the very basics at a time when uh, this disease was really taking hold, he was calling it a democratic hoax. Um, he only recently started to um, 
to talk about masks as a thing that should be worn, even though um, his CDC has uh, been saying it and known it for a while. I think sending really conflicting messages really matters. Um, leadership really matters at a time like this for our country um, and people have been left uh, without uh, general guidance from the fe federal government, without anything to look towards. Um, uh, still with programs like uh, testing, where were the tests? So many people died early on um, and the testing still isn't there. And I think probably most troubling is he still doesn't have a plan. Um, so when you have an administration that is so antithetical to anything based in science, where you literally have a president who thinks that he can supplant uh, scientists uh, by going on his gut. I mean, everything um, from suggesting people should drink bleach uh, to saying he's taking uh, non-FDA approved drugs that are probably really dangerous uh, for most Americans to be taking. Um, there is no part of this that has not been um, just horrific that he's done to spreading spreading lies now and suggesting that um, our numbers are high because we test people um, when it's simply not true. Um, but I think uh, this president, you know, really had a big crisis late in his, in his four-year term and we've shown uh, what he did with it and it's nothing short of just absolutely catastrophic. Yeah, I kind of wanted to harken back to your point about how President Trump has really used this moment to be, to kind of like highlight his anti-Chinese sentiment um, with calling the COVID, uh, the COVID pandemic the China virus. And um, so since you've become CEO of the DNC, Chinese-US hostilities have risen to an all-time high. Um, for example, like in addition to what was previously talked about, the US and China have engaged in a trade war. Um, and you know hostilities in the South China Sea and a strategic space race. So this is an issue that seems to have taken priority in the U.S. national agenda, and many believe that it's inevitable that China is rising. How do you think that the next administration should deal with the rise of this new global order and uh, Chinese-U.S. hostilities? Well, I, I think that um... I, I think one thing I wanted to say at the outset of this question is to separate out Trump's um, Trump's racism towards Chinese the Chinese Americans and Asian Americans in this country from the foreign policy because I think they're kind of two slightly different um, things that he's doing. Um, I I think he is someone who looks for opportunities to race bait um, to basically draw. Americans into divisive um, positions, not unlike um, what Russia tried to do with our election. So I think this is, um, he knows exactly what he's doing with his language. There's nothing accidental about it and he's doing it on purpose. Um, and what we've seen as a result is an unprecedented rise uh, in hate crimes against Asian Americans throughout the country. I mean, unprecedented um, numbers where, um, Asian Americans are, are fearful in a lot of places. It's, it's um, and it, it, it can all be tied directly to the president's language. Um, I think in terms of uh, China, US uh, relations, you know, there is no doubt. And I think uh, Biden has very good plans for this. We need to be, 
you know, really tough. Um, we need to be really tough in dealing with China and making sure that uh, they are playing by the rules. I mean, I think there's an economic imperative to it. Um, and I think uh, that's something this president um, has not done at all. There's a reason that, um, you know, world, world leaders really, certain world leaders um, really want him to stick around. Yeah, um, and while we have so many international relations questions, there's also a lot that the DNC has just done domestically. So I want to just shift focus a bit and kind of talk about all the great things the DNC and you have done um, during your time as CEO. So in 2018, Democrats won the House with the largest midterm margin in history. How did the DNC play a role in this histor historic victory? And why do you think the Democratic Party had such incredible success? Um, do you think the midterm elections are any, any indication of a shift in public opinion towards more liberal ideals in the U.S.? Um, so the results of the um, 2018 election were incredibly fantastic. Not only did uh, we win in big numbers uh, in taking back the House of Representatives, but the other thing about it is I think the diversity um, of new members, the women um, who are just so diverse both in both in their ethnic and racial background, but also just in life experiences and, and where they come from and who they are and whether they're cancer survivors or former teachers or um, come from state and lo local movement building. Um, and in terms of you know, how, how we did it, and by the we, I mean us as all Democrats, because I think the DNC played a part of it, but it certainly it was also having fantastic candidates um, fantastic activism at the state and local level um, and and really a lot of incredible leadership with uh, Speaker Pelosi. One thing that we did at the DNC was um, really focus um, from the beginning of Tom Perez's tenure as chair and really focus on rebuilding uh, state parties. Um, the Democratic state parties had um, been kind of underinvested in um, over the course of uh, the years where President Obama was president. So a lot of it was really getting back to some of the basics and recognizing that local organizing really makes a difference, um, being really um, strategic about where you're, where you're building infrastructure really matters. But I don't think we can underestimate um, what the grassroots really did. Um, so many people became active for the first time, um, organizing their communities, and so many different women's groups um, in particular um, formed to really make, uh, I think, 2018 possible. So it really takes all of us, but I think there was a lot of, um, a lot of good synchronicity with people really oaring together um, and fielding really great authentic candidates really uh, I think made a difference. Um, yeah, we also want to move on to the next section of our podcast. Um, kind of as our audience will see for all of our podcasts, we have a little section asking you more about like your perspectives um, in your role, but also your perspectives as a woman. So moving on, what unique perspectives do you think your identity as a woman has brought to the table during your time as the CEO of the DNC? 
And did you ever feel that your gender was a possible hindrance towards your ability to accomplish your responsibilities as CEO? So, you know, it's, it, I, I always find it's hard to say, this is a little bit of a, I, I think Senator Harris said something like this recently. Um, it's hard to say, you know, what effect your gender has on your perspective, because I've only been my gender and I've only been brought my gender and race and world experiences to, um, to roles and jobs that I've had in different lenses. Um, I will say, you know, politics is a brutal business and it's really hard. Um, it's really hard for women. It's really hard for women of color. Um, I think unlike some other areas, certainly not all areas. I mean, if you look at corporate boards, it's pretty abysmal, um, both for women and people of color. But I, I do think despite having, you know, women in, in larger numbers, um, it's still hard uh, for women, not just running, but in the political um, realm. I don't know if it's a hindrance. Um, I don't know what hindered me and what helped me. It probably, um, it probably didn't help a lot, but I do think that the perspective that really diverse teams brings is everything. And that's why I think it matters to have um, women and diversity of thought and diversity of economic perspective and diversity of racial backgrounds in the room at all times because people bring themselves and their perspectives to decision making. And that's what makes decision making better and more informed as you think about resources. Where are we investing? Who are we investing in? You know, how are we approaching our work? Is it, is it collaborative? Is it inclusive? Those things I think all really matter and people bring all of themselves to their jobs. I absolutely love that answer. Um, and it is so true. I never thought about it in that way that, you know, we're only one gender. So we really don't ever know the different perspectives or how that has ever impacted us. Um, another question I'd love to ask, because many of our podcast audience are looking um, into pursuing careers in the U.S. government, whether that be, you know, the state, intelligence, or, you know, domestic politics. And with that responsibility comes, you know, a time where maybe your personal interests, your personal beliefs can conflict with the larger agenda. Um, and so as former CEO of the DNC, have you ever faced a time in which the DNC's party agenda took priority at the expense of your own beliefs? Um, and how did you reconcile these two competing interests and which do you believe should take priority? Um, so, so I don't know about in terms of my own beliefs, in terms of my own belief systems and um, but, um, but certainly there were decisions that we made at the DNC that I may not have always agreed with. And certainly as someone who spent a lot of time in government, um, I have been in many, many positions throughout my career where your organization makes a decision that you don't agree with. And part of your job is to not only implement that decision, but to go out and defend that decision publicly. Um, and what I'll say about it is, um, it's really important um, that, that there's really complicated um, interest to balance when you're making hard decision. I mean, a lot of the things that we were balancing at the DNC, they're hard. Um, and there's not perfect answers. 
And I think it's really important at an organization, as long as it, if you're doing something that is so antithetical to your belief system, you shouldn't be there. Or that is antithetical at all to your belief system, you shouldn't be there. Um, but to me, it's more important that people are included, the right people are included in the decision-making process. Because I think if you're a part of the decision-making process and you've had an opportunity to sort of you know, get the right people in the room and talk about it and the decision as a group doesn't come out the way you want, I do think it is your job, it literally is your job to defend that decision and implement that decision. And if it becomes so antithetical to you, then you should leave that organization rather than, you know, do something because it's just counterproductive when organizations are going off in multiple directions. That doesn't do anybody any good, even people trying to implement this alternative decision. <laughs> yeah, I actually think that's like a super good piece of advice um, for any like young professionals and especially people that might wanna go into politics or follow a similar career path to you. Um, and like on that note, do you have any recommendations or pieces of advice that you'd wanna give young women who are interested, again, in pursuing some sort of similar career path? So, I would say a couple of things I'd say, you know, first I was, as someone who was an IR major and then ended up being a very domestically based lawyer and then ended up, you know, in this political sphere at the DNC. Um, I, sometimes it's, it's important to have the right job right now. And um, when I talk to young people, I'm always so impressed because everyone is so seems so much more deliberate about their careers than a lot of my contemporaries were. Um, not that people didn't care, but it just seems um, there's a lot more thought, which is good. But I think the other thing to remember is um, it's okay to kind of have a little bit of a jungle gym rather than a ladder that you're climbing up. Um, because, um, you know, I think in life we iterate, we sort of figure out what we like and what we don't like as we go along. Um, one thing I think that is really important that um, I always underestimate going into a job, how much it matters, is who you're working with. When you go in every day, who are the, you know, five, 10, 15 people you're interacting with the most because so much, um, and, and how do you work together as a team? And so much of jobs are about that sort of everyday um, happiness. Um, I think it's really important to, to find, um, to find things that really work for you in every organization, every internship, try to find people um, who are gonna give you those bits of advice um, along the way, but also remember that it doesn't have to be this linear path. It's okay to change course um, and every job could be the right job at that particular moment, but may not have been 10 years ago or may not be you know, 10 years from now. One final question. Um, this is our last question, but I think it's very timely um, given that, you know, Kamala Harris has just been appointed as the official vice president nominee um, for the first woman in history, which is amazing. And I think it's really inspiring lots of women and you especially too, to see women in such high positions, whether that be in the DNC or in the administration. Um, and it's kind of created this climate, well, which has already been coming ever since Clinton, that there should be more women holding high positions in politics. Do you agree? Why or why not? And why do you think it's so critical at this moment in time we make sure that the women who are running, you know, get these high positions in politics? 
Um, so I was very, very excited um, about Senator Harris, uh, Harris's selection as the vice presidential nominee. Um, she is, you know, phenomenal. And I, I, as a, as a woman of color and as someone with a African American and South Asian background, it's really, um, it was really fantastic to see. And um, I didn't realize what an emotional thing it would be um, for me in particular, but incredibly, incredibly excited and uh, just have the highest uh, respect for her and everything she has done in her amazing career. Um, I think it is absolutely incredibly important uh, to keep bringing women in at all levels of politics from, from the vice president to um, the growing number of uh, Congresswomen, uh, which is still not um, in no way balanced still um, to the growing, uh, hopefully growing number of Senate. I mean, we still have very few um, women as senators. Um, I think that what we see when, um, when women get into politics, you know, as I was saying in the context of the other question, they're bringing all of themselves uh, to the job. And, and what you see, I mean, look at, look at the Supreme Court. You know, you had that recent um, abortion case on the Supreme Court and, you know, you have an incredibly powerful uh, dissent from uh, two of the three uh, women justices um, not that not that there's a necessarily you know linear you know singular view amongst women of um, on choice issues, but I think that perspective really matters a lot. I mean, it, until um, Senator Duckworth was there, I don't think you could have um, you couldn't have children on the on the Senate floor. Um, and she says, "Well, I have a baby, <laughs> and maybe you could abandon the dress code so I can nurse my baby." Um, so I think it's incredibly important um, to have perspective, and I don't just mean as, as, as mothers or on you know so and so called women's issues. You know, women are half the population, and um, our perspective really matters. And and the other thing I, I'd say is that in this moment in our country, um, you particularly in democratic politics, you really see women driving the work at the local level. They are driving it, they are owning it, they are organizing, um, they are lifting up these incredible candidates, both men and women. Um, so I think it's really important that um, they, we take our seat at the table in this real way. Um, and I think it's, it's just gonna make our policy making and our politics better. Thank you so much to Seema Nanda for agreeing to be a guest on our podcast. And thank you guys for sticking around to the end of this episode, and we hope to see you in our next one. Mm -hmm.